I've said good morning to the boys and girls, so let me say good morning to everyone here in St. Phil Baptist. Um, it's good to be here this morning. I know you were expecting Andrew, not my twin brother. Not, uh, you're expecting Andrew, but unfortunately you have me. But I say unfortunately, but there's no mistakes in God's providence. And um, it seems that the message that's going to be delivered this morning is the message that he wants us as a congregation to hear. He wants that to be a challenge to us. So I take comfort in knowing that reality. Let me invite you, please, to open your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I want us to read together John 20, verses 11 down to verse 18. John 20, God's word, beginning of verse 11, says this, But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And see if two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had laid. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have bore him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary, she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and unto my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. And this is God's word to us this morning. Let's bow our heads once again and let's ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you just for the great privilege it is this morning to, to meet in, um, as your people and to sit under the sound of your word. We pray now, Lord, that as we study your word, that you will um, speak to us from it. We pray that you will soften our hearts to rightly receive the word of God. We realize that Satan would love to take the word of God and to pluck it from our hearts. We realize that the anxieties and the worldliness around us would love to suffocate the word word of God so it doesn't take fruit. But we pray, O God, that your word will go forth and by the Spirit will be planted into our hearts to bear fruits um, to your glory. We pray in our service now that Jesus Christ will be glorified, that he will increase and we as sinners will decrease. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week, as many of you know, we celebrated Easter weekend in which we as Christians meditate afresh on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ over 2,000 years ago. But after Jesus was raised from the grave, he did not immediately ascend to the right hand of his Father. Instead, for 40 days, he appeared to his disciples, showing them that he was alive And during these 40 days, many people were transformed by meeting the resurrected Messiah. And this morning, I want us to think about the transformation that came to Mary Magdalene when she met that 
uh, when she met Jesus that first resurrection Sunday. As we look at this passage, I want us to see that the life-transforming impact that Jesus had on her, he has still today for many people. Jesus still from heaven and through the Spirit still goes through the world and meets people and transforms them by His saving grace and by the gospel of His glory. So from our passage this morning, I want us, if you're taking notes, I want us to uh, learn two important truths that Mary teaches us from this passage. First truth is this, love for Jesus is expressed in our devotion to Him. Love for Jesus is expressed in our devotion to Him. Throughout church history, a lot has been written about this woman, Mary Magdalene. But the fact is, we know very little about her. It has been said in church history that she was an immoral woman before Jesus changed her. But we do not know this for certain. Some have claimed that she married Jesus and had his children. But we know that this is a lie of the devil. So we want to ask the question, what do we know about this woman for certain? What does the Bible tell us about Mary Magdalene? Well, from her name, we know that she's from the town of Magdalene on the west bank of the Sea of Galilee. Mary Magdalene, she's from a fishing town uh, beside the Sea of Galilee. We also know that her life before Jesus, according to Luke 8, verse 1-2, is that she was oppressed by many demons. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 2 says this, Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And that's all the Bible tells us about her former life. She had seven demons. She was demon-possessed. She, she didn't have a, a messy, immoral life from what we know. Instead, she had seven demons who tormented her, who controlled her, who hurt her, who abused her. But Jesus Christ came to this woman and he set her free. He radically changed her life forever. And therefore, her new life, her free life, was devoted exclusively to the Lord Jesus Christ. She loved him with great affection. And this was displayed in her great service and devotion to him. We see it in the fact that she was one of the women who was last at the foot of the cross. I wonder if you ever, have you ever noticed that in the gospel accounts. In the crucifixion, the last group of people at the foot of the cross are the women the disciples have fled, they've locked themselves in the upper room, but the women remain until the end. And Mary is among that group, showing her devotion to Jesus Christ. We also see her love and devotion to Jesus and the fact that on that first resurrection Sunday, she was among those, that group of women who went out early to anoint Jesus' body with spices. When you read the four gospel accounts, we are told that a group of women set out to anoint Jesus' body with spices. But John tells us here in first one of chapter 20, he tells us that Mary Magdalene arrived at the tomb while it was still dark. Whereas in Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verse 2, we're told that the other women arrived after sunrise. So it seems that although this group of women set out together to anoint Jesus' body, Mary runs ahead of them. 
She's got such great love and devotion to Jesus that she wants to be first at the tomb. She arrives when it's still dark. And when she arrives at the tomb, she realizes that the body of Jesus is missing. She realizes that he has gone. He is not there. Instead, his body is missing. So she runs away. She runs back to uh, Jerusalem to tell Peter and John and the other disciples that Jesus is missing. And when she runs back, Verse 13 tells us that she asks the two angels, uh, she, she, she sees these two angels and they ask, why are you weeping? And they say, look at verse 13, they say, they, uh, she says, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Notice how she references Jesus. Verse 13, she says, my Lord. He wasn't simply a good friend that she missed, rather he was her Lord. He had changed her life so much that she loved and served him with her all. She served him in life and now she was serving him in death. But now she weeps because the body of her Lord is no longer there. Her great love for Jesus was displayed in her devotion to Jesus. This morning, St. Philip Baptist, I think this challenges us. If you are a Christian this morning... Does your love for Jesus, does your great love for Jesus express itself in devotion to Jesus? You see, before Jesus changed our lives, we were under the control and the reign of another master. The Bible says sin. Jesus says in John 8, 34, truly, truly. When he says truly, truly, it's a, it's a solemn, it's a significant statement. He says, truly, truly, I say unto you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We are slaves to sin. We're controlled by sin. We're dominated by sin. We serve a wicked, hard, deceitful taskmaster. We're locked up in its chains and tormented day in and day day out. But when Jesus came and transformed our lives, he took away our sin, he crushed the power of sin, and he set us free from our slavery to sin. He didn't set us free from our slavery to sin just to live as we please. Rather, he set us free from our slavery to sin so that we could come and we could follow him and serve him as our new master. Now we belong to him. He is our Lord and our Savior, and we are his slaves. That's how the Bible describes you as a Christian. That's your identity as a Christian. You are a slave to Christ. You're a servant, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. In this world, slavery is rightly frowned upon by many because of the abuse of slavery over the, the, the past through, uh, thousands of years in, in history. And yet when we think about slavery to Christ and being servants of Christ, it's not a negative thing. It's not a restraining thing. Instead, it's a fulfilling, flourishing, truly life-giving thing. We follow and we serve a master who is unlike any other. We serve a a master who is the wisest master. We serve a master who is the most loving master. We serve a master who says that a bruised reed he will not break or a a faintly burning burning wick he will not quench. It's, It's an imagery of he deals gently and tenderly and lovingly with his people. We serve a master who is gentle and lowly in heart. 
who provides rest for our souls. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. That is our identity as Christians. We are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to Jesus Christ. And the example of Mary in this passage should challenge us to examine our lives to see if we're showing the same devotion to Jesus. Is your love for Christ expressed in a life that is truly devoted to Him. During the week, even on a Sunday when you come to church, are you an obedient or are you a disobedient servant? You see, your entire life belongs to Christ. Sometimes Christians can fall into this danger of um, thinking that there's a secular and there's a sacred divide. And by that, that some Christians mean that, that Monday to Saturday, that's our secular work. That's our, our, our life in the world. And Sunday is the sacred day, which it is. It's a day of rest. But, but the, the Bible tells us that every single day, of our existence as Christians, is not some for the world, some for ourselves, and then Sunday for God. Instead, every single day, every single hour, every single minute is supposed to be for God. It's supposed to be devoted to God because He is our Lord and our Master. So are you devoting every area of your life to Jesus? Is your head, what you think about, what you meditate upon, devoted to Christ? Are your hands, what you do during the week, uh, devoted to Christ? Is your heart, what you love and what you desire, devoted to Christ? Are your eyes, what you look at and what you see and what you view during the week, devoted to Christ? We live our lives constantly in the presence of God. We live our lives as servants of Christ. And therefore, Christian, this morning... Are you living your entire life for Jesus Christ? Notice again in the text why it is that Mary is devoted to Jesus. It's not because she's obligated. It's not because she's guilty. It's not because it's necessary. Instead, it's because she loves him. She loves who he is, and she loves what he has done for her. And the love of Christ compels her to serve him in life and death. You see, you can hear this challenge this morning and you cannot respond rightly because your heart is cold towards Christ. If we are to respond rightly to this message this morning, we need our hearts warmed by the glories and by the love of Christ. We need to realize afresh who He is and what He has done for us. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, The life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul was devoting his entire life to Christ. Again, not out of obligation, not out of guilt, not out of regret. Instead, it was out of love for Christ. The love of Christ compelled him to serve him. So if you're going to hear this challenge this morning and respond rightly in the week to come, then you need to have your heart warm towards Christ. You need to realize afresh who he is and what he has done for you. Love for Christ must be the foundation of all our service to Christ. You're coming here to church this morning. You're serving in a ministry here in St. Phil Baptist, whatever it may be, the children's ministry, the youth ministry, the media team, whatever the ministry may be, love for Christ must be the foundation. Not guilt, not regret, 
not tradition, but love for Christ, because that honors our Savior and our Lord. So the first thing we learn from this passage is love for Jesus is expressed by our devotion to him. Love for Jesus is expressed by our devotion to him. But secondly, I want you to notice from the passage that the resurrection of Christ changes everything. The resurrection of Christ changes everything. And in this passage, there are two things specifically that we need to notice. Firstly, the resurrection of Christ changes our sorrow into joy. Jesus' resurrection turns our sorrow into joy. The text makes clear how Mary is feeling at the tomb. Did you notice it? She's weeping. She's greatly grieved at the death of Jesus. And now her weeping is intensified because the body is missing and the tomb is empty. And yet two times in the text, once by the angels and once by Christ himself, she's asked, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? It seems an unusual question to ask, doesn't it? Since they know exactly why she is weeping. It seems an unusual question for Jesus to ask because he is the Lord who knows everything. So he knows exactly why she is weeping. So we want to ask, why do they ask this specific question? Well, it's because weeping was not the right response to the empty tomb. If you turn back in your Bibles to John 16 for a moment, verses 16, we're going to see this, that this is what Jesus actually prophesied and said. John 16, verse 16. John 16, verse 16 says, A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, what is this that he saith unto us? A little while and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while and ye shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he saith? A little while, we cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him. And saith unto him, do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said? A little while and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while and ye shall see me. Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in childbirth, have sorrow because her hour is come. And as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Here in John 16, it's the night of Jesus' betrayal. He's giving his farewell discourse to his disciples, to the 11 apostles who remain, because Judas has, has disappeared and he's went to betray Jesus. And he tells them explicitly that there is going to be a time for sorrow, when he is killed and when his enemies rejoice over him. And yet Jesus promises that their sorrow will turn into joy when he has been raised from the grave. So back in chapter 20, if you turn there now, although Mary's weeping at the tomb was the natural response, it wasn't the right response. The right response to the empty tomb was rejoicing because Jesus Christ had risen from the dead, something Mary was yet to see. 
And in this passage, we actually witness her sorrow turning to joy when she meets the resurrected Messiah. Did you notice that in verse 14, she turns, look there with me, she turns and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't actually realize that it is Jesus. She thinks it's the gardener. Although she doesn't know him, Jesus knows her. And in verse 16, he calls her Mary. And as soon as she hears his voice, she knows it as Jesus. And she bursts out and she says, Rabboni, which means master and teacher. Remember back in John 10, Jesus, uh, he declares that great statement, I am the good shepherd. And he says in John 10 that as the shepherd, when he speaks, his sheep will hear his voice and come to him. Well, that's what we're seeing here. Mary, as a sheep who follows the shepherd, knows and recognizes the voice of her good shepherd calling her by name. And when she recognizes him, her weeping turns into rejoicing. Sorrow turns into joy as Jesus had promised. You see, Sainfield, rejoicing, not weeping, is the right response to the empty tomb and the resurrection of Christ. At the time of Jesus' death on on the cross, it was sinners and the enemies of God who were rejoicing. It was the devil himself who, who, who was rejoicing. He thought he had conquered the Son of God. And yet when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, he showed that his death had defeated death, sin, and the devil forevermore. Jesus Christ, the author of life, dived into the clutches of death blew it apart and came out and showed that he is the author of life to the entire world. You see, the empty tomb this morning must be greeted with rejoicing because the empty tomb and the resurrection of Christ is the foundation of our faith. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is that great resurrection passage, the importance of the resurrection. And he says, if Christ has not been raised, Then our preaching is in faith. What I'm doing right now should not exist. Our faith as Christians, putting our faith in Christ, is ludicrous, it's futile, it's pointless. And we as all men and women are to be the most pitied in the entire creation because we are without hope. If the resurrection is taken away, everything in Christianity crumbles to the ground. And yet because Jesus has been raised, we can rejoice We have a faith this morning. We love the Son of God. We worship not a dead Savior, but an alive Savior, one who holds the keys to death and Hades and says, I am alive forevermore. Sainfield, does that thrill your hearts this morning? Does that encourage you in the faith? We worship one who's no longer in the tomb, but the one who has conquered, the Lion of Judah who has crushed Satan's head. The Lion of Judah who has removed our sins forever. The Lion of Judah who has killed and defeated death. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Where, O death, is your sting? Where? We can rejoice as Christians because our Savior has been risen. The resurrection of Christ was the catalyst for those first disciples. You remember I said earlier, it was the women who were last at the tomb. What were the men doing? Well, They went and they hid in the upper room. They went for three days and they locked the door, fearful of the Romans, fearful of 
the Jews who were going to arrest them. But as soon as they see the resurrected Christ, as soon as they meet the resurrected Messiah, there's fire in their bellies, there's wind in their seals, and they go throughout the entire world and they preach the gospel and they turn it upside down because the resurrection of Christ turned their sorrow into joy and made them rejoice. They no longer feared. Instead, they were emboldened and and with courage went forth and told a dying world that their Savior is alive. That there is one mediator between God and man. That is the man, Christ Jesus. That should be be the result of the resurrection in our own lives. As you go this week into work, as you go this week into wherever you go, your family, your friend groups, your sports teams, your universities, wherever you go, the resurrection of Christ should cause you to rejoice and to spread that news with those around you. So the resurrection of Christ turns sorrow into joy. But secondly, notice that the resurrection of Christ turns our hostility with God into fellowship with God. Our hostility with God into fellowship with God. Jesus was taken away from Mary and his followers. He was brutally killed on the cross. And then she thought his body had been stolen. So now when she sees him standing there in the flesh before him, Alive, it's natural for her to fall at his feet and to hold him tightly, thinking, I don't want to lose you again. Well, that's what happens. Her extreme sorrow turns into ecstatic joy, and now she falls at his feet and she holds him tightly. In Matthew 28, verse 9, we're told that this is the reaction of the other women to Jesus. In fact, because Jesus tells her in verse 17, look there with me, he says, not to touch me, um, uh, not to cling to me, It appears that that is what she is doing, holding him tightly, not wanting him to leave. I said earlier about my brother, my twin brother, he went to um, South Africa for a gap year a few years ago, and we hadn't seen him the entire year, but when he came back to the country, my mom grabbed him and hugged him in the airport, and she said to him, don't you be going anywhere anytime soon. It was a natural reaction. I want you to remain. I want you to stay with us. Don't be flying off and jetting anywhere else anytime soon. That's what Mary's saying here. She's grabbing on to Jesus and she's saying, stay. Don't be going anywhere anywhere anytime soon. Stay with us. But look what verse 17, look what Jesus says to her. He says, do not cling to me. Do not touch me. For I have not yet ascended the Father. Jesus commands her not to cling to him. He tells her that she must not cling to him because he is ascending back to the Father. Mary is now reunited face to face with her Lord, but he gently rebukes her and he tells her that he won't be staying face to face with her for long because he's returning to the Father. You see, the resurrection of Christ was the first step in Jesus' journey back to the Father. That's where Jesus is right now. He's not on this earth. He's not in the tomb in in Jerusalem. He's a risen Savior, but he is right now. He has ascended through the heavenly places, as Ephesians 1 tells us, right up to the right hand of God, the place of supreme authority, unparalleled exaltation, the place uh, that is above every other power, dominion, ruler and authority, and he has the name that is above every other name, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So this morning, yes, we worship a resurrected Savior. We do. 
But we also worship an ascended Savior, one who sits enthroned in the heavenly places. The one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So Jesus is telling Mary, don't cling on to me. Don't hold me. Don't restrain me because I have to go to my Father. I have to ascend back to the Father. But he also tells her not to cling to him because she has another act of service to perform for her master. Look at verse 17 again. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers, my brethren, and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Jesus calls her and he says to her, go and tell the other disciples that I'm alive. She's in another important and urgent task to perform. She is to go and tell the other disciples the amazing, the life-transforming, the world-changing news that Jesus Christ is alive. She's commissioned as a servant to go and to serve her master in this task. And yet notice what the message is. It's so significant. I love this verse. Look at the message again, verse 17. I am ascending, go tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus calls his followers, notice, brethren, brothers. Why? Because his Father is now our Father. His God is now our God. You see, in John's Gospel, there are 120 references to God as the Father to Jesus. And yet this is the first, and this is the only time that God is called Father to Jesus' followers in John's Gospel. And yet do you notice where it comes? It comes post-incarnation, the birth of Jesus. It comes post-life, post-death, and post-resurrection. You see, if Jesus remained dead, then his coming into the world, his perfect life, his death, would have no effect on us. It it would all be in vain. And yet because Jesus has been raised, everything has changed. Now we can have fellowship with God. Our sins, the Bible says, separate us from God. Our sins are an affront to a holy, holy, holy God. We are separated. We are enemies. We are are distant from Him. There's hostility between us and God. And yet because Jesus has been raised, our lives have been changed. He removes our sin. He removes our hostility. He satisfies God's wrath. And He brings us into fellowship with God. Now we belong to the family of God. Jesus is our elder brother. God the Father is our heavenly Father. And the Spirit is our comforter and our helper. The resurrection changes everything. It turns sorrow into joy. It turns hostility with God into fellowship with God. But Seinfeld, I wonder this morning, as I, as I preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, and as you hear the, the, the transformation that Christ brings to people, I wonder, has this transformation taken place in your life? Has it? You've heard sorrow turns into joy. You've heard hostility turns into fellowship with God by meeting Christ. But have you met the resurrected Savior? Not physically in the flesh, but by the eyes of faith. Have you looked to Him and have you been saved? See, it's all good, and many people in Northern Ireland, they come to church every Sunday. 
They put on their Sunday best. They have their Bibles in hand. They sing the hymns. They sit under the sermons. But they are never affected by the gospel because their hearts are hardened. And yet the author of Hebrews says this morning, Today, if you hear the voice of God, do not harden your heart. Instead, respond to the gospel. Christ can change your life. Christ can turn your sorrow into joy. He can bring you from under the wrath of God and being an enemy to God to being in the family of God and being loved by God. Therefore, come this morning and be changed by Christ. Come and love Christ. Come and put your trust in Christ. Come and depend on Him alone for your salvation. If you do, then this transformation that took place in Mary's life will take place in your life whoever you are. Notice again, verse 17. Jesus says, go to my brothers and say to him. I think it's amazing that he calls his followers his brothers. He calls us his brothers. Christ is our brother. So often we don't feel like a brother to him. So often we let him down. So often we don't act like a brother. We certainly at times don't look like a brother. And yet the wonder of the gospel is that he willingly and out of love calls us his brothers. In fact, according to Hebrews 2 verse 11, he's not ashamed to call his brothers brothers. Seems like I'm saying a lot about my twin brother today. It's, it's it's an accident. I hope he's not listening online today. But my brother, like, sometimes, because he is a twin brother, like, I'm embarrassed of him. Sometimes I am, just because he's quirky, and I can say that because I've known him all my life. We're the same, same birthday and everything. But I'm embarrassed of him. And I don't know if you've got the same, like, sometimes brothers are just weird. Sisters are also weird. I'm embarrassed of my sister sometimes as well. And yet, Christ is not ashamed of us. He's not embarrassed by us. He's not let down by us. He's not repulsed by us. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers. Instead, he loves us as his own. So it doesn't matter how you're feeling this morning. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past week, how you've messed up in the Christian life. If you are in Christ, if you've been brought into the family of God, if Christ has changed your life, then he is not ashamed. He is not ashamed to call you his brother this morning. Some of you this morning have come into church feeling the guilt and the weight of the brokenness of this world, the mess-ups of your sin in this week. And as you've walked through those doors and as you've sat down in your pew, the devil has been nagging at you and he's been accusing you and he's been saying, why are you here? You shouldn't be in this holy place. You shouldn't be sitting under God's word. Later on, you shouldn't come around the table. You are too sinful. You're too broken to be here. And yet the Bible says, and Christ says, no, you're not, because you are my brother, because I love you, uh, because I have redeemed you. So this week, when the devil comes and accuses you of your sins, and when he tries to pick on you like a bully in the playground, how are you going to respond to him, Christian? You're weak, you're vulnerable, you are a mess, it's true. But how will you respond to the devil, the accuser of the brethren? Well, you'll turn around to him and you'll say, do you know who my brother is? Do you know who my father is? 
My brother is the one that you tried picking a fight with at Calvary, but he crushed your head. My father is the one who reigns over all, and he loves me, and he has brought me into his family. Therefore, Satan, get behind, get behind me. My brother is not ashamed of me. My father loves me with an everlasting love, and therefore, I will rejoice. Seinfeld, that's how we respond to the devil this morning. If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you're facing the accusations of the devil and the guilt of this world and of your sin, respond in that way. Not by looking at yourself, but looking to Christ, who is above all else. He has redeemed you. He has changed you. He has saved you. He is your identity and your life. You see, this is the glorious message and the calling that the resurrected Savior gave to Mary, his servant. It's a calling that we share in. We are called by our elder brother to go and to tell others that their sorrow can turn into joy and their hostility with God can turn into fellowship with God by meeting the resurrected Messiah. Why? Because he's not dead. Rather, he is alive and his resurrection has changed everything. That is the message that we have this morning. So as we close, let me encourage you, if you're a Christian this morning, to go tomorrow into this week and to tell a lost and dying world the resurrection of Christ changes absolutely everything, that their life can be absolutely transformed by meeting the resurrected and the ascended Messiah. Amen. Let's bow our heads and let's pray as we close this part of the service. Father, we thank you this morning just for how beautiful and how glorious your word is. We thank you that even Christ says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we pray this morning, Lord, that as we've heard your word spoken, that it will prove to be life to us, that it will encourage us in the faith, that it will bear fruit in our lives. We pray, Lord, for those Christians this morning who are just struggling with their identity, struggling with their guilt and their shame, struggling with their mess-ups. We pray, O oh God, that you will comfort them by helping them to turn their eyes to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of their faith. We pray also, Lord, for those maybe who are listening this morning who um, are outside of Christ as well. We ask, O oh God, that they will even see the, the glorious change that Christ brings to lives. May they come and just be changed by him this morning. So we pray, O oh God, now that you'll prepare our hearts for those who stay around the table. Prepare our hearts to remember Christ in the way that he's appointed. And for those, Lord, who might have to, to leave at this point in the service, just bless them as they go out this rest of the day. Help them, Lord, just to even love you more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to stand and sing when the music group's ready. Uh, days are filled with sorrow and care. So we'll stand and sing. It's an appropriate song uh, when the music's ready.